Welcome to 74 Podcast, Lubna Chowdhury. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, on a lovely, sort of semi-sunny day in London. <laughs> so, as an artist whose primary medium is ceramics, how has the lockdown affected your work, um, you know, considering that you work from home? And what are your upcoming projects? I know that you're always very busy and, and making a way. Um, can you tell us yeah. a little bit about this, this period? Yeah, so... Um... I think you know when when the lockdown happened I was in the middle of a residency in Stockholm um and I'd gone there it was a three month res- residency with an organization called Yaspis and mm. it was a really great op- Swedish Arts Council yeah that's yeah. right yeah. yeah and uh and I'd been invited there and it was it seemed like a really brilliant opportunity to sort of start thinking about working with uh, new materials and to sort of face the challenges of working outside of my usual studio setup. Yeah, I suppose the thing is, you know, I'm an artist that's been trained in ceramics, that's my primary medium. And so it was really great just to be in Stockholm and just arrive into an empty studio and really start thinking about uh, the local landscape and uh, and the sort of the landscape of making there and so on. Uh, but obviously the residency was cut short and I decided to come back rather than be uh, potentially locked down in Sweden. Right, uh, yeah. And so I've really been continuing to develop some of that work here um, with a view to sort of maybe showing it. I've, I have an exhibition in India in November with my gallery to very contemporary. Yes. And and so I've been thinking about how to develop some of that work over here. And really, it's been just back to my usual setup, really, and of working from home. And obviously, there are pros and cons of working from home, you know. Um, I suppose there's the sort of, there's the benefit of isolation. I mean, it can be sort of, I suppose it can be pros and cons, really, of isolation, you know. There's yes. The, that there's the solitude that isolation br- brings, which means you can actually just really get on with work, but mm-hmm. it can feel isolated. Of um, course. Now, you have a home studio designed by the architect David Adagia. Mm-hmm. Um, when and you know when did you decide that you wanted to work from home and, and commission yeah. Sir David, should I say, to uh, um, build a studio for you at home, which I think is kind of really convenient for most artists to be able to work, especially with a kind of technical craft like ceramics and so on. I suppose what happened was I'd had a number of studios around London and obviously always, um, I suppose artists are always at the sort of the avant-garde discovering uh, sort of (laughs) new areas and, and developing them and then sort of being forced to move on. You know, they're always at the sort of... Um, that edge of development, aren't they? And so I sort of felt that I'd always been part of this community that had been moved around. But mm. when you're working with ceramics, it's quite sort of equipment heavy. All the materials are quite heavy. You know, you mm. you have to travel with your kilns, for example, for stu- wow. from studio to studio. And after about three or four sort of consecutive moves, I became really tired of moving and so I decided that actually I'd moved slightly further out of the city. I had been living quite centrally and had my studio centrally. So I decided to move sort of into zone three and find a place to live. My husband's an illustrator and Mm. we decided we could maybe just both try and find a place to live and work at home. And so the hunt was on for a 
a house with a long garden where we could build a studio and just remain sort of quite sort of stable in terms of our working yep. life. So that was uh, that was the idea. And uh, and then quite early on, I came across an article about obviously being a long fan of David's work. But then I came across an article which was about a timber frame construction he'd built in East London for a couple of other mm. artists that right. worked out sort of fairly economically very cheekily wrote to him and asked him if he'd be interested in doing something for me and luckily he said yes and that that's how the project sort of evolved when was this exactly uh, it was probably 2002 or wow. three okay. yeah like so i remember his um you know the house that he made for tim tim noble and sue webster in east london oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the first time I actually ever heard of him and came across his work. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I've been living in East London, and funnily enough, the estate that I lived on had a, a sort of a small muse house with workspace. Uh, sorry, a muse street. Yes. Workspaces, and he'd had one of the studios on that estate, mm. and then sort of went on to. Uh, work with other artists in in that area you know I'd, I lived in Shoreditch but he'd done a number of houses sort of the Tim Noble and Sue Webster houses in in Shoreditch and then that's the, right yeah in Brick Lane yeah in yeah. and around Brick Lane hmm. yeah and what are the you know having a home studio of course and you can fire works and you can actually t take a work from beginning to completion and quite unusual for artists today especially working on monumental scale uh, what comes to mind is your piece Metropolis, which has been an ongoing piece, mm. um, which was recently acquired by the Art Jamil and started out life at the V&A. Can you tell us about the process of this work and sort of the, the, how you would sort of even, you know, begin to approach something like this and, and how yeah. it got so big? Because I know that it took you several years. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, Metropolis is a sort of, it's an ongoing work, really. And I began it many years ago and it's sort of, um, I suppose it almost became a diary of my experiences over time. Uh, so I think I began in the, in the 1990s, just at the point when I was leaving the RCA. Mm. Um, and it's a sort of spatial installation. At the moment, it's, uh, well, at the moment, I've sort of stopped a thousand sculptural, a thousand of these sculptural objects. And it sort of charts the man-made environment. And I think during my education, I was quite conflicted by, uh, I suppose, the dual sets of influences that I was exposed to. So on the one hand, um, you know, there was sort of uh, Western modernism, which was the framework within which I was educated, but I was also drawn to uh, sort of, I suppose, non-Western art. Yes. Uh, and particularly looking at sort of traditional ways of making and uh, and and traditional and sort of tendencies such as Torah vacui, for example, which is um, it's it's a term that's often used to describe uh, all over patterning and mm. decoration that's used in architecture and and to cover objects in in non-Western countries. Mm. And uh, so there are these sort of two very conflicting sets of values and I was constantly trying to find a way uh, to reconcile these and so I suppose Metropolis began as a way of assimilating these uh, this sort of multiplicity of ideas and aesthetics from these two worlds yes and at the time I had quite a binary way of looking at the world uh, and I had really divided um 
a sort of aesthetics into in a very simplistic way into east and west but eventually it sort of became because of the way that I worked which is sort of very directly uh making within the facility of my own hands I was able to sort of synthesize these ideas in quite an intuitive way through direct physical making eventually it became this sort of iconography of forms which is almost like a mashup of multiple cultural references and I suppose that accidentally it sort of began to examine the relationship between disparate objects and disparate aesthetics and disparate cultures with their own histories and, and, and their own geographies and it became a way of sort of collaging these together in a very uh, sort of subconscious way through the process of making and it's a body of work that's sort of grown over the last 25 years I've sort of worked on it on and off and um, I must say it spent a long time in my loft um, uh, <laughs> you know in between there are periods in between where it's just been yeah. scored um, but then yeah hmm. wonderful yeah no it, it, it's um, of course I remember it from the last edition of the Kochi Biennial yeah. in Pepper House and um, it was obviously one of the you know highlights of the of the biennial and it, it garnered a great deal of attention yeah. and um, yeah. that was wonderful to see I remember talking to you before um, at the India Art Fair we were in conversation and um, it was interesting to, to to note your quite unique background as, as someone who grew up in Africa you know you sort of really seem to embody this internationalism and globalism contemporary art today do you think that the art world is a more diverse place and what can be done to ensure greater representation in the arts do you think yeah um i mean obviously i suppose i've been practicing for over 30 years uh as an artist and um i've had quite a sort of circuitous route to success and uh, and visibility yeah. and over time i've had to circumvent quite a lot of gatekeepers uh, and networks and and often there's been a, a sort of lack of engagement with uh, the work that I've done in the past particularly and I don't know whether that's through sort of laziness or mm -hmm. unfamiliarity or just a sort of an ignorance or unwillingness to engage. Well, you uh, also work in a medium that perhaps you, you've mentioned before that it doesn't really um, there was a sort of a little bit of a confusion as to whether it's art or it's ceramics and therefore yeah, whether but... it's craft or art and I think that you've been quite resolute that it was the process of making was, was very important to you and what, whether people saw it as ceramics or art was sort of... Yeah, yeah, I mean I suppose, uh, I suppose historically you know clay has been seen as just a material for sculpting with but I suppose in more recent times it's also became associated with um, with a domestic pursuit mm. of making, um, I suppose, you know, of crafting domestic objects for the home. But then obviously, again, more recently, it's had a little bit more of a, a sort of a revival as a sculptural material. And it's quite common now to go to any art fair and see many, many ceramic objects or sculptures. And so, yeah, it, I suppose, you know, there has been this sort of evolution in terms of the way it's perceived. But, yeah, in terms of the material. Yeah, so maybe if I take those two um, 
aspects one at a time. So, I mean, I think if we're talking about sort of cultural diversity, you know, I think that the world has changed during the time that I've been working, but I still feel that there's not enough of a change. And I think, you know, the recent sort of events in America with the death of George Floyd has have really highlighted, I suppose, the difference between a sort of certain set of beliefs, but then actually actively acting on those beliefs. Mm. And it's one of the first times that I've heard about the idea of anti-racism training. And, And so I sort of feel that there's actually still, I think, Essentially, no one wants to believe that they're a racist, but I think that actually there's still a lot of work to be done in um, ensuring diversity. Um, but also, you know, I, I feel that it has to be done in a way that um, it's sort of, it's work that everybody has to do, that it's not a job that's just left for people of colour to do. So I sort of feel that, yeah, the world has moved on uh you know we're seeing more diversity in terms of academics artists critics curators but quite often my feeling is that it's people of color writing about people of color people of color interviewing people of color people Mm. of color curating people of color and i sort of feel that actually there has to be a bit more diversity in that i agree with you yes absolutely Um, Mm. um and so that there's actually uh, the onus is on on say for example white academics and curators being actively more inclusive and you know i mean a couple of years ago there's a report called the panic report which was funded by the arts and humanities research council yes. so it's yeah. it yes. and the cultural and creative industry networks were revealed to be relatively homogenous right. and relatively white compared to other very traditional in the industry sectors. And I sort of feel that even though these people would normally think of themselves as being left-leaning, um, it just revealed that black and minority sort of ethnic artists were still not being represented fairly. And I think that is because of very tight networks and gatekeeping and so on. So I saw, I still feel, even though the world feels like it's changed superficially, that actually there's a lot of work to be done where inclusivity just becomes natural and sort of part of the course of curating or, or um, writing rather than this sort of bolted on compulsory add-on, you know. Um, yeah and then i suppose then the other thing is about the diversity of materials and how that's uh and i suppose more of a reference uh or inclusion of materials that have been traditionally seen as craft materials so obviously there's been a huge um interest in textiles more recently and weaving and and the same with ceramics and i think that's just really great to see because when you devote yourself to a material there's a whole i mean in a way it could be a lifetime's devotion in the same way that you it it can be if you're a painter or if you're a sculptor working with the material and so there's a lot to continually explore technically and also of 
I suppose the application of the material and into the world, into the wider world. And so, yeah, I mean, that's something that's really at the forefront of my mind. I've always worked very directly with the hand and making a sort of direct link between Absolutely. Can you tell us a bit more about the importance of the hand in realising the work? Yeah. And, you know. I mean, I think Metropolis is uh, a, a really good example of this where um uh where there's a sort of an immediate immediate link between what your brain's thinking and what your hand is doing and there's a very short route to that yes uh it's a very intuitive process it's not uh there's nothing uh that intervenes there's no there's no one um there's no middle person uh, through which you might need to execute a piece of work. It's a very direct process of sitting down at a table with with the material and producing in in a sort of, I suppose, in a very primal way. Um, but obviously, more recently, I've started to have to think about working on a larger scale. And um, a, a large part of my work is is project-based work and I've made I sort of a few years ago maybe about a decade ago uh, or even longer slightly but uh, I made the move to thinking about how to get the work out in how, how to get the work I was making out into the world that we inhabit and into, into the urban world and and how to integrate it with architecture for example and I started to work with ceramic tiles uh, because that was a sort of I suppose a natural development from from making clay objects to making clay that objects that could integrate with the environment. Yeah, I um, thought. I'm sorry to interrupt, but there was uh, well, you've done the lobby of the New Standard Hotel in London, which that's is that's right. Which is, yeah, which is very yes. interesting. Yeah, a recent project, and I think having done having to do those larger projects means that I have to explore new possibilities of working say for example with industrial ready-mades and working with new technologies um, and and somehow trying to avoid the practical constraints of working with clay in the studio as a raw material um, so that you're taking your expertise to something that's sort of almost pre-processed but the material is essentially the same and you're approaching it with the sensibility um, and the intu intuition of, uh, of a ceramicist, for example. Uh, and for me, what's quite interesting about doing that is that there's this coming together of the manual and the technological and uh, and also of in, um, of industrial and manual processes uh, and that's a really interesting dynamic for me and it's something that I'm sort of continuing to pursue and and also realize that as the projects become larger I can start to work with others to fabricate the work and I don't have to make everything myself because I sort of feel that with when you're working with clay, it's a very particular discipline and a very particular skill set. And often it's it becomes quite difficult to sort of delegate that. Uh, and so working with ready-made, it's been a, a really interesting new direction for me. Yeah. Wonderful. Excellent. And um, so can you tell us a bit more about the advantage of, I suppose, working from home at a time like this? 
and, and you know, working with your hands, being able to sort of take something from an idea or a sketch in your hands to kind of finished work, I think must be quite a privileged position to be in as a maker and, and then to be able to then work at scale like you do with multiple objects. Yeah, I suppose the uh, the great thing about having my studio at home is that there's a there's I've got two kilns here so yeah you're right I can see something through um without any intervention from anybody else or without reliance on other um sort of fabricators or any other sort of technical intervention so yeah I've sort of made my working situation or set it up to be sort of quite self-sufficient that's when I'm working with making sculptural work for example but on the other hand I also do have this sort of project-based work and that's much more about collaborating with architects or designers to integrate work and often uh, and actually more and more that has uh, involved um, a sort of collaboration working to somebody else's brief thinking about the way that um, uh, I can apply my uh, aesthetic and material sensibilities to other materials. And um, as the projects grow larger and larger, I can't really be fabricating everything in my studio. I mean, the great thing about working with tile has been, because of its modular nature, I've been able to work on quite large projects yeah. by setting them out, sort of... Uh, section by section and then eventually piecing them together on site or in a larger space somewhere so that's been brilliant to to a certain extent I can I could carry on doing uh, work in that way but with the project-based work it's it started to become more and more varied and it doesn't necessarily always call for a ceramic material um and so recently you know i've been looking at say for example bronze casting or working with enamel panels that's exciting yeah yeah mm. it is really exciting yeah. um it means that you know sometimes i also have to think about how much work i can do in the studio how you know about blocking time out in the studio mm. to only do to only make sculptural work for example for exhibitions that are coming up um uh, and then the project-based work is happening more and more with fabricators. So, uh, yeah, so it's 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 interesting to keep the two plates spinning at the same time. And then obviously sometimes with the projects, you know, I've got about four projects on the go and each of them involves working with different materials. So that's sort of four plates spinning and then the work in the studio uh, which at the moment is directly for the Javeri Contemporary Show, is much more about the craft of working with ceramic. And then also, I'm also working on a series of small paintings. And oh, wow. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Okay, that's very exciting. And can you tell us a little bit more about the show in November at Javeri yeah, Contemporary? Uh, yeah, it's a solo show. Is it your first solo show in, in India? Yeah, yeah, it will be my first solo show in India. Good. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've shown Metropolis at the Kochi Biennale. That was very yes. exciting. Yes. And I've shown a couple of times at the India Art Fair with the gallery. Yes. Um, but this will be my first solo show. Wonderful. And so um, I suppose initially what I had wanted to do was to sort of visit India and 
and think about collaborating with a craftsperson in India because uh, many years ago I completed a residency. I've been invited to do a residency at the Victorian Albert Museum. Mm -hmm. As part of my research at the residency, I'd started to look at colonial furniture and the process of a sort of aesthetics that came about through the making of furniture. So basically it was a, it was a sort of collaboration between the colonial Europeans and the colonised craftspeople. And, and the Europeans were taking their sets of aesthetics and asking craftspeople in India to create furniture. And the results of this were a really interesting uh, branch of very hybrid looking objects, which quite naturally brought together these two sets of aesthetics, right. often, often quite awkward looking objects. But for me, it was a really interesting revelation because it told me a lot about my own work. It revealed, a, it was quite revealing about my own um, sort of hybrid aesthetics. And so that's something that I wanted to come back to for this show in at Javeri Contemporary in India. But unfortunately, because of COVID and lockdown, I haven't been able to travel there. So, <clears throat> so what I'm going to try and do, I've started the project, it's sort of quite tentatively, and it's just at the moment, it's just an initial sort of discussion that's happening by phone and WhatsApp and email. Um, uh, but I think what I'll do is just actually continue the project because I've got an exhibition in London next year at the Peer Gallery in Hoxton. I might have then time to develop the work in India and then bring it over to show at Peer. But obviously it's not going to be ready for the for the very contemporary show. But actually I have got lots of work to show at Tibet and lots of new work to show at Javeri Contemporary as well. So uh, as I was saying earlier, you know, I've been working on paintings and some collage work and some large scale ceramic panels and some new sculptural work as well. So there's lots going on. Wonderful, it, yes, yeah. exciting. And there's just <laughs> yeah. one particular aspect of the work that's not going to be there. Okay. But yeah, but it'll hopefully evolve for the next show. Yeah. That's very exciting. And um, finally, I suppose we want to know whether, you know, whether you listen to music while you're working and what kind of music you like to listen to. And if there's anything, you know, any books or essays or, you know, articles that you've read that you think that you'd like to share with us or had an impact on you. And it could be anything. Okay. Yeah. 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 So um, I suppose I've, what I've done recently is revisited the Reniedo Lodge book, which is called, I'm sure everyone knows, it's at the top of the bestseller list here, uh, that uh, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. And I'd read the book a few, a few years ago, but, uh, and it's a really great book that provides a frank insight into the lives of people of colour and particularly interesting for white people to read. And I found it a really useful tool to develop a language that describes the subtleties of racism and then to begin to identify and tackle them. Um, uh, I mean, it's quite interesting because I read it a few years ago and I sort of feel that I've got, I'm at the point now, I mean, my son was very young there and I didn't really want to taint his life with ideas about race and racism. So I hadn't mentioned it to him, but actually now he's of an age where we can begin to have a discussion about it. And I think it's just a really good place to start. I mean, it's a sort of, I suppose it, 
the title for a lot of people could seem quite aggressive, but I just think it's a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant, easy, quite easy, accessible read, and it's on Audible too. So mm. plenty of podcasts around the book. And at some point, I think in one of her podcasts, Rennie, uh, so Edo Lodge talks about the development of networks and how it's quite important for for people of colour to develop their own networks. And, uh, and actually, that's something that I have done in response to reading the book, you know, set up a network with a friend of mine of sort of South Asian creatives, which has been very... Um, amusing and uplifting during the COVID period. Uh, so that's a really useful book that I'd recommend whole wholeheartedly to anybody who's uh, interested. Amazing. And then yeah. Uh, music, uh, yeah. So I suppose when I'm in the studio, I do actually prefer silence because mm. as I, I find it more and more difficult to have quiet time and to really be able to focus on work and have clarity of thought and decision and be able to make decisions. Sure. So often I do prefer silence, but when I'm working late at night, for example, quite often I'll, you know, I've got this Spotify playlist uh -huh. called Happy Tunes, which <laughs> I made many years ago right. with my son uh, during his more innocent time. <laughs> and it's everything from like The Carpenter to Aretha Franklin, Super Furry Animals, right. there's Frank Ocean, Anderson Pack, Childish oh, Gambino. Yes. But <laughs> son's gone on to rap. Now. You know, he's moved on to rap now. Right. So he sort of bolts at the thought of ever playing anything that's titled Happy Tunes. Right. But anyway, but uh, yeah, but, but then also when I'm working late at night, two of, the, two of my real favourites are, um, there's a there's a sort of uh, a composition by Nico Muley called Drones in Large Cycle. I see. And it's 12 minutes and it's really contemplative um, ambient music that you can just put on repeat and wow. you can enter it at any time. You never know where, which is the beginning or the end. So that's a really great one to play while I'm working because it's not too distracting. And then my second favourite uh, is by a musician called Hol Holger Zukai, and it's a song called Persian Love. And Zukai was a sort of German, he was a G German musician who was a sort of co-founder of Krautrock, which I'm not really into at all. I know nothing about Krautrock, right. but I just love this um, this. Well, tune, but this sort of uh, composition, which I suppose what I love about it is its hybridity. You know, it brings in elements of Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern music and combines it with, um, I suppose, what Western notions of ambient music. But he was known for one of being one of the first people to have in the West to have started to, I mean, he's dead now. Uh, he died in 2017, but he's known for one of the first people to have explored world music very early on. I mean, it was quite interesting. I was just reading about him and he began, he hadn't had a very good education because he'd moved around during World War Two and ended up working in a radio repair shop where he sort of became really fond of the oral qualities of crackly radio broadcasts, and that was the that that was the sort of um, 
that was the seed to his uh, musical and creative career, I suppose. Yeah, which is a really interesting, um, I suppose, uh, history to to understand in his work. Yeah, Fantastic. yeah. Fascinating. So those are my two favourites. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much for your time today, and um, I look forward to seeing your show in November. When yeah, you make it there, and um, uh, yes, yeah, and hopefully meeting up soon. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot, Swiftle. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye.